guys. Welcome to Environmental. I'm Mary. I'm Emma. And I'm Emily. Uh, we're college students who love learning about our Earth, and we're eager to share our journey. Environmental is a radio show committed to blowing your mind with all things environmental. We'll explore topics such as climate change, pollution, and sustainability. Join us for a 3 a.m. existential crisis broadcasted at 3 p.m. for your convenience. Woo! <laughs> All right, so the, uh, this episode is very special. We have a special guest in the studio. Um, he is a professor here at WSU for School in the Environment, Dr. Mark Kramer. Woo! Feel free to say hello. hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, um, we all were in his class together um, a few semesters ago, and that's kind of what brought us all together. And so thank you very much for... You're the reason we have this show. At least yes. the passion that in started the show. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for <laughs> inviting me to be here. It's yeah. great to see you again after so long for some of you. Um, and this is a really exciting show, so I'm really excited to talk about some of these issues with you guys. Cool. cool. Great. Really coming full circle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And this is our Q&A episode. Yes. So we have questions from you, our listeners, that we're going to answer um, after we... Um, interview Mark here for a couple a little bit about his background yeah so thank you to everyone who submitted Um, if we don't get to your question uh, next week we are going to answer a few Um, and we got a lot so thank you so much if you uh, submitted we appreciate it yes thank you okay should we start off with the interview interview a little mini interview introduction (laughs) sure um so my question for you is kind of just where did this where did you get started so like maybe um what do you get your bachelor's in and why did you choose that degree to start yeah. out with well so we do have a little bit of time so um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah plenty long of time. story but um i actually started at uc berkeley um and i was interested in v- environmental issues but i was also a philosophy major um, oh. For a number of years. Oh. Um, and so I began early on studying philosophy and was interested in environmental issues and discovered a form of philosophy that was very inspiring to me and really sort of m- developed a pathway for me to work on science and become a scientist. And that was a branch of philosophy called contextualism, similar to existentialism. Oh, okay. Um, but <laughs> contextualism, which in a long or short version um, is a branch away from Cartesian reductionism. Um, so we don't have to get into Heard all those that. details. <laughs> <laughs> say what that is, though. But, but contextualism um, is, was the initial sort of springboard for me. And then one of my friends called me up one summer and told me about this major called environmental science at Berkeley. And we looked through the catalog, and we were all excited. The catalog is about uh, over an inch thick at UC Berkeley. So there are a lot oh, of courses wow. and a lot of majors. And we discovered this major, um, and it really fit with a lot of things m- myself and a lot of my classmates were really interested in. Similar to you guys, it sounds like, starting this radio show. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, the environmental science program at Berkeley is you know, a sort of a segue for where we are now and where I am um, in the School of the Environment, working with environmental science majors like yourself. And one thing I'll note about the UC Berkeley environmental science major is that we had a year-long senior thesis project, um, which again, for me, was really formative for sort of pursuing my career in sciences. And I was able to build using back then what was revolutionary technology of um, spatial geographic information systems um, right when it came out um, and we developed some new tools using GIS technology that um, were really useful on campus and we ended up getting funding after the project which is always fun if you start a project Um, and from there I continued to get more and more interested in science and went to graduate school um, started a nonprofit in between there oh, using GIS. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. Working on developing um, core and corridor connectivity issues in wildlands. So, how to acquire land that would connect patches of redwood forests. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. um, 
so that wildlife could move in between the patches. And actually, Willie cool. Brown ended up acquiring, a, uh, the mayor of San Francisco ended up acquiring a large patch of land um, from some of the work that we did. Um, and so they ended up buying this one reserve from a private corporation um, that was going to log that area. Um, and that wow. inspired me to realize that I learned just enough in my undergraduate degree that I really wanted to learn more about science. Um, and so then I, I went on to um, pursue a master's and a PhD. Wow. You accomplished quite a lot in just <laughs> your undergrad. <laughs> no rest for the weary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, and you know, it sounds like a lot, but it was really fun at the time. And yeah. we were all doing new stuff and really excited about what we were doing. So... <coughs> so was cool. environmental science like that was like a new major that UC had like just no it up? wasn't a new major but it, there's so many majors um, that actually going into the school it took me a while to even learn about you know there's literally probably 150 majors yeah. mm. there so um, if it hadn't been for my classmate and you know that sort of summer hiatus <laughs> discovering it I don't know if if I would have found it, I mean, I was interested in, in a lot of this subject matter. I was already taking classes on it, but that, mm-hmm. for me, finding that major really sort of helped solidify a lot of this. Wow. Oh. Cool. Right. Which so. you guys are lucky to have here on campus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad we have the climate change class on campus. That, that is a class that exists. <laughs> right. Specific. So then when you graduated from all your schooling, did yes. you know, like, what was your first um, career job? After so that? after I finished my Ph.D., um, I took a whole new sort of avenue, um, and I started looking for water on Mars, um, working at NASA. <laughs> and so I actually had two main jobs at NASA, and I was there for about seven years. I was looking for water on Mars and studying carbon on earth um Mm -hmm. and um really enjoyed doing both we actually mapped the largest watershed on the surface of mars um using some new laser altimetry it turns out you can study and we understand more about mars in a lot of ways than we do um the surface of the earth so it's a really nice way nice place to you know use new technology um and answer new questions so we mapped this one watershed that was larger than the amazon um, on Earth, wow. um, and found evidence for water in the history of the planet um, as a precursor to the life detection mission, which is the current rover mission, mm-hmm. is, is now on a life detection mission. Back when I was involved, we were on a water detection mission mm-hmm. with the idea that if you follow the water, you will find life. Yeah. So we'll see what they find. So we don't have to get too deep into this, but do you think that there's life on Mars? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> there certainly is evidence for past water and subsurface mm-hmm. ice. Um, and there are a lot of chemical weathering reactions that occur on Mars, similar to the ones that occur on Earth, um, and some similar mi- minerals. Um, and so if you think about probably 10 centimeters below the surface, um, Mars starts to look more and more Earth-like when you get 10 centimeters below the surface. Um, And so the precursors are there, um, and some of the minerals and some of the uh, aqueous environments we need. So um, I think there's, it's not inconceivable. Awesome. So, <laughs> does that mean you, you would you sign up to be one of the <laughs> the folk that go live are on you, Mars? Are you going to Mars? Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys should play the Elton John song. <laughs> show. It's my favorite song um, for the Mars work because, as you know, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, a one-way mission is probably what we're looking at, right? right. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. I'm if not ready. For I'm that. ready for that. But mm, okay. I think somebody might be, maybe somebody on the show that, you know, that listens to the show. (laughs) It certainly is an exciting opportunity, but um, it's kind of a one-way opportunity right now. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I'm good here. Thanks. (laughs) Let us know. But if you do ever decide to work on Mars, you know, you get to do really cool things like wear a Mars watch that tells Mars time, and um, (laughs) the time is on a 48-hour one day is 48 hours. Okay. Um, and then, of course, the seasons are different. And 
you get to go in these rooms that are basically where you command the rovers um, and you know you're, you really do you have to travel to Mars to really sort of engage and 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 decide where the rover is going to go and what measurements the rover is going to make let alone analyze um, all the data that's coming out of there so there there's definitely a lot of opportunity without having to travel all the way to Mars to to study um, minerals and life on, on Mars so cool. after your experience and time at NASA, how did you kind of circle back to studying more like climate science? Yeah, well, so while I was at NASA the whole time, half of what I did was that, okay. roughly, and then the other half was um, carbon on Earth, right. mm -hmm. um, sort of in parallel, and um, ultimately decided that, you know, carbon on Earth took priority in terms of my mm -hmm. interests and my research, um, partially driven by the magnitude of the problem we have with the carbon cycle and you know the need to address it not that finding life on Mars isn't super interesting and very cool um, but but I, I sort of became more focused on on the carbon cycle part of um, on Earth part of part of my work at NASA and so had an opportunity after that during the Obama administration to start up a climate change program here in the Pacific Northwest um, which I saw as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity hopefully it it's not just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I took this job up here, which is what brought me up here um, after working at NASA, um, and I was given a job title as Senior Climate Change Scientist, um, which I was hoping at the time we would have thousands of Senior Climate Change Scientists hired by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, you know, uh, since that time, a lot of those efforts and a lot of the support for federal and state programs <coughs> addressing climate change are in a, I shouldn't say state, but actually just on the federal level are in a state of um, some some decline, but I hope that you guys all get an opportunity to get a job title like Senior Climate Change Scientist. Um, it was the coolest job ever just to have that job title. Yeah, um, that would be cool. <laughs> and I was able to set up a climate change program, which was a really neat and unusual opportunity um, for a big federal agency. So I was given a budget, I had a board of directors, and I set up the program um, to address climate change in the Pacific Northwest, and then went back to um, academia, which is sort of full circle in terms of where yeah. I am now. Wow. So what made you want to uh, become a professor <coughs> and start teaching? Well, uh, in part, it was somewhat analogous to when I was doing the nonprofit and decided that going back to school was, you know, the right thing to do mm -hmm. at that point for me, um, in the sense that, you know, you you need to decide where you're going to have your biggest impact and, you know, where you, f you feel that you can contribute the most. And to me, there was no question that, you know, the need for new understanding and research on some of these problems... Um, superseded our ability to problem solve with the tools that we had um, because so, there's so many unknowns and so you know for me that aspect of addressing the uncertainties and then also education uh, which was a third of the program that I developed um, when I started the climate change program was education in, mm -hmm. in rural western uh, United States um, and so that actually was the basis for the class that you guys took, which is really kind of a climate change 101 class. Mm. Um, and when I did that, I used to f travel to the most rural parts of Washington and Oregon and um, find audiences that were characteristically, or at least in the popular lore, maybe more skeptical yes. um, of climate change and climate change science. And I actually have yet to encounter a real climate change skeptic. And the whole time I've Really, and doing the doing the class in a in a classroom okay. and in rural America. So I, partially, it's because I bring a barbecue with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the key to skeptics' hearts. Is well, I mean, <laughs> farmers and rural Americans. You know, if you bring food and start cooking it in the morning, um, it's it's hard to really experience much hostility if the mm -hmm. ribs are really reaching their peak uh, <laughs> readiness right yeah. around the time you yeah. bring up. The, the the uh, issue of skepticism, but we d we did a kind of climate change boot camp, and we would talk about skepticism, what the basis for skepticism is, 
Um, and definitely serving food um, is, is a, I wish we could do that in class every day. We do <laughs> at the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, we did have pizza. a pizza party. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That helped. <laughs> that helps. But, um, but yeah, so, so the, both, you know, sort of doing the outreach rural communities and really trying to um, provide tools for basic climate literacy are, I think, a really important yeah. need. Um, both at WSU and, you know, across the country, if we can all be literate and have basic climate change literacy, our potential to address the problem, mm -hmm. I think, will be that much better. Yeah, I think scientific literacy is, like, a really big importance. I think a lot of yeah. our, I don't know, even questions that I come across from, like, um, skeptics could easily be solved if mm -hmm. they had, like, scientific literacy. Yeah, I agree. And that's why we started this show. <laughs> we are going to circle back to talking to skeptics. Yes. Um, okay. We have questions about that later. All right. Um, Do you guys have food available? <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get, uh, like, college students to events, too, is mm -hmm. just make sure there's food there. So. Yeah. yeah. And farmers, you know, farmers, if, if you really sort of look at farmers as a, case study I'll get back to your next question but but you know they typically do food events and they're okay. with themselves um, and you know that's how you interact is is through you know weekend um, food starts cooking early in the morning and people <laughs> come and go and so you know if you want to interact and engage people in those settings you know it's important to find a way that they're that's the way they tend to communicate and, and uh, work with each other as a community so and you know it's not that it, eating food is a great thing so yeah it's wonderful so if if you say that you <coughs> haven't really encountered like skeptics what would you say that your the most difficult aspect of your c career was if y if you weren't if you you know what i mean if you didn't if you weren't trying to fight for your like if the most difficult part of your job isn't talking to, to skeptics, skeptics and denialists, <laughs> then like yeah. what, what is the what most is difficult it, yeah. part of it? Now? Yeah, or in or in your past. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I think uh, setting up this climate change program, the, one of the biggest barriers was the institutional capacity mm -hmm. um, of these federal agencies, and you know how ready they are and how adaptable they are to really address an issue like climate change was is definitely a barrier. Um, now, you know, I think definitely funding is a challenge now. Mm -hmm. I, my main federal funding agency just got eliminated, um, oh. effectively eliminated, I should say, but they um, moved everybody from Washington, D.C., and they were either given a choice to give notice or move to the Midwest. And about 90% of the... Uh, program managers that ran one of the central climate change agencies in the U.S. Um, retired. Dang. Wow. So that's unfortunate. You know, I mean, you always make the best of these circumstances, but it, uh, I think, you know, if I could have a wish list going forward, it would be to have a, an entire agency focused on supporting just climate change yeah. research. Yeah. That, that would be my, you know, uh, if we could all write proposals to one really well-funded federal agency to address some of these issues. Um, it would be a lot <coughs> easier and certainly help support, you know, the kinds of resources that are required to address some of these questions. So do you think that'll be a problem for, does that impact um, just your work or like the work of all clim climate scientists? Um, I think a lot of climate scientists are experiencing to one degree or another difficulties with funding um, now. Um, it's been diminishing, and um, we need to have a little more focused support from federal agencies. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. What federal agency do you think would be best equipped to kind of have that branch on? Well, I mean, if it were me, um, mm -hmm. if I were running for president, or if I were a science advisor to uh, the president or the candidate that's running for president, I would set up uh, a new agency. Oh. Yeah, not have it like be connected to the EPA new. or anything Correct. like that. Okay. Um, it would, and it would probably be a consortium, which it has historically to some degree, but it's never been funded, but it would be a consortium of capacities from NASA, from the USDA, from uh, NOAA, um, and other federal agencies, including the National Science Foundation. But it really needs to be its own entity because the problem is that each of these agencies has a certain budget and then you know of that a certain amount gets allocated towards 
something like this and of that a certain amount is t typically focused on their mission priorities mm -hmm. yeah relative to the questions at hand just for climate change mm -hmm. um. all right well one of us is gonna have to get up there in the political legislation and and start that so well the elections are coming up <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes vote well, as we always vote, say yeah. yes please um, so I think we have some listener questions. Yeah. To, so you're off the spotlight, at least. But we would love <laughs> to now. have your feedback on these questions. All right. Yes. So our first question from our very committed listener from day one. Um, suppose you know your garbage is going to a landfill, but you're not sure your recyclables are actually getting recycled. Would it be better to throw it in the garbage so you know for sure they won't end up in the ocean? Love your show. Keep spreading the word to save our planet. Aww. Is that from your mom? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did a little research, and, you know, we, we understand that China is no longer taking our recyclables. Um, and so the question was kind of, where are they going now? Um, and the answer, I think, is in, in the landfills. So yeah. that was kind of a disheartening to find out that um, we we can't we're not really recycling yeah um, um, and this was from um, NPR's um, they interviewed Katie Kate O'Neill and she wrote a book and she kind of discussed how um, since countries are no longer taking our waste because it's you know trash that they they now have to deal with um, Malaysia was actually sending back <laughs> some of the recycles. Um, so it's just stockpiling up and we're just putting it into landfill. Yeah, it used to go to China, but then now they've like put it on each individual recycling center to figure out like mm -hmm. what to do with it. So there's no like federal, um, I don't even think there's a state level of like where that recycling is going like each recycling center now it's has to like figure out who's going to take their stuff mm. yeah there is some good news though just okay. so the listeners good. know good. I love good, we love good news i mean the good is you can still separate your compost out right. and that of course will be composted so and that makes a really big difference in terms of how much material gets added to the landfill so if you aren't yeah. doing that or or if you are you know certainly know that that's making a really big difference and then of course paper and glass is still recycled so here. So yeah. it's the really comes down to that difficult issue with the plastics, mm -hmm. um, which, as you guys said, is, is a real problem. But at least it's only the plastics. And then, you know, focusing on using things like paper products and glass products can definitely help. Yeah. So I think, Mom, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just important to think about where your garbage is going. Um, because once you throw something away, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So if we're just focused on what we're purchasing in the first place, maybe that yeah. will... Um, and reducing... Reduce. Um, Single-use items use. Yeah. plastic items, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And also, if you're unsure of whether it's recyclable, it's actually better to assume that it's not recyclable and just throw it away because... If you put in the recycling bin and it's not recyclable, then um, they end up having to throw a lot more of like recycled items that they wouldn't have had to if you didn't put it in there. It's yeah. like contaminated. Though. Yeah. Um, also, just rinsing out your your recycled food containers. So like, if you don't completely rinse them, they'll it that's waste. Right. So I thought that was interesting. But then it's like, are you wasting water by rinsing your plastic mayonnaise uh, jar my thought rub on, it rub it out my dirt. thought on that is that <laughs> water at least like cycles we, it goes through okay. the municipal like water system versus waste in a landfill it's taking up space okay and we only have like so much space yeah that's my thought but it is yeah, you are point. still using energy to, by like washing it out but it's make your own ketchup <laughs> what <laughs> And Vancouver just started composting. Yeah, yes. parts of Vancouver. Yeah, so yeah. Really inside city limits. I think we didn't yeah. get it. Mm. But we have Same. a warm bin. Okay. Uh, the second question: What are the top three countries with the biggest environmental impact? Um, so the top three countries that produce the most uh, total CO two emissions uh, per year are China, 
the U.S. and India in that order. Um, China is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide gas in the world um, with 9.8 billion metric tons in 2017. Um, about 70% of the total energy derived in China comes from coal. Um, the U.S. is the second largest emitter of CO2 with approximately 5.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. Um, that was in 2017. Uh, the largest source of CO2 emissions in the U.S. comes from power generation, transportation, and the industries. Uh, and then India is the third largest emitter. It produced 2.5 billion metric tons of CO2 in 2017. And the coal, coal as a source of electricity in India has risen from 68% in 1992 to 75% in 2015. And we definitely talked about this in our climate change episode about how, you know, China makes the most of our stuff. So is their, um, is their emissions true to what they use or is it based off of what we ask them to, to make for yeah. us? Because um, they're using their energy to create products for us. So we got a nod. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and that's that's of total emissions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what did we learn in your class is that that's total emissions, but U.S. has highest per capita yeah. emissions. Right. Which is very important to pay attention to, also, because even though we have less people, we're actually making more carbon. Yeah, if you notice, like, the top three co uh, countries who have the most pollution are also, like, the top three largest countries with the most population. Um, but, yeah, even though the United States isn't the largest country, it still produces the most pollution per person. I think that's what really just hit home for me was, like, if I live in America. I am emitting the most as a human. So it's, like, I am responsible. yeah. So that's what really helps me but, feel. But 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 you have the one of the greatest chances of leading a zero emission lifestyle. Okay. Should you? Yeah. So desire. Should I ride my bike to school every day? Or yeah. what about electric vehicles? Yeah. That yeah. are in the secondhand market. I mean, probably in the next decade, if we're lucky, you know, and so inclined a lot of us could get a lot closer to a zero emission lifestyle as close as is possible. Yeah, yeah the U.S. has like the greatest opportunity for change <coughs> of like most other countries because we haven't enacted as many, we're highest per capita, but then we still have like so much change we could do, so much like electric yeah. vehicles, so much like renewables yeah. that we could enact. That's why it frustrates me when people think that they can't make a difference. It's like, yes, you can. Yeah. We all can. We can all come together. My next car, hopefully, will be electric. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hoping for. We should all we should all do that. Just remember, you have to count the cost of production, though. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, would it be better to keep my old... Yeah, when my old car dies. Yeah, <laughs> when my old car goes out of commission, instead of just buying a new, a new electric car or buying a used electric car. Yeah, I think it's that's what probably going to be your best, yeah. Secondhand. Okay. Yeah, and you can um, buy, uh, like, a used electric, um, and then my partner was actually looking into it, but some of the, like, older electric models, they didn't have as quite as big of the range as the new ones coming out do now, um, but you can actually get, um, like, the new batteries installed into, like, oh. the older models to get a higher range um, and then you don't have to, like, you know, produce a whole new electric vehicle. You can buy one that's already been out there and mm -hmm. then just add in a new battery. Yeah. So there's okay. options. We can do it. Yes. All right. Our next question. Um, what can the United States do as a country to help solve the problem of climate change, which is a global issue mm -hmm. from Josh? It's, it's our responsibility to... <coughs> Um, do the best we can um, not to we need to be leaders in the green revolution and we can't expect other countries to change until we show them that we're doing everything in our p 
power to change as well. Um, and so again, like we said, vote, you know, make, do small changes in your life that are beneficial um, to the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mark, what would you say to someone who like says, it always makes me mad when someone says this, like, um, well, like why should the U.S. do something if before China like fixes their problem or like India fixes their emissions? Like why should U.S. Yeah. be the, the leader, I guess? Well, and I, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this in, in the class mm-hmm. at the end, but, you know, the, putting the question into an either-or scenario and some sense of we have to do something at some cost, in my view, may be the wrong conversation to be having. So, you know, asking people to change in some way that sort of alters uh, things that they would want to do otherwise that they can't, um, you know, has not gotten us very far in the Mm-mm. debate. And I just wonder whether or not that's the right conversation to be having at all. Yeah. Right. Um, and so if you change a conversation around and if it's no longer, you know, hey, you need to stop doing X or you need to stop doing Y, why aren't you doing this? It's important. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know what that looks like, but all, from what I've seen, based on you know what little progress we've made on the issue since the 80s, it's pretty clear that having the same conversation has the risk of getting us the same result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that directly answers your question. <laughs> but in terms of China and India, I think you guys really addressed it well earlier, is that there's so much economic interdependence that you know if we're outsourcing things to be produced there and they're mm-hmm. using coal, um, you know, they're, they're, we're just we're so integrally related in the global economy that you can't really point fingers at one country yeah. or another. And when you start finger pointing again, maybe that's you know not going to get us where we need to be. Yeah. I don't have a syllable yeah. for that, but yeah. What do they say? You point one finger at someone else, you have three pointing back at you. Because as soon as we start pointing <laughs> fingers, like everyone will start pointing fingers at us. Well, well, we make your. Mm-hmm. Made in China products. We make your this. Um, all those externalities go elsewhere. So, I mean, the other thing is, I think if we do start having people that lead zero emissions lifestyles, or close as close as one can come, and it, you know, if it's possible to do that and have a lot of opportunity, and if it's easy for people to adopt that lifestyle, if we can be leaders and show people how easy it is, um, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And, you know, and that to me, if, if, if that, you know, and in China and in India, um, if people can press a button and hit that zero emission option, um, then we can, if we can make it easy for them and not this sort of large, you know, long transition or sacrificial yeah. process, um, I think we'd have a better chance at changing the conversation and having a, more of the results that we're yeah. needing. So just kind of showing like, like, look how it easy it is. Like, changing the conversation to be, like, look how easy it is to be zero waste, be zero emission, instead of saying, like, oh, well, you like you can't do this, you can't do that, look at the things you can't have. So just instead of saying, like, you can't, things you will lose, instead of saying, like, look at how easy this is. And you can still have all of these things in this lifestyle. Just, like, changing the tone, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah even with planes now, they now have some electric planes so you know it's conceivable that you could have zero emission travel um and of course ships there are really low emission yeah um, ocean mm. options they have electric planes already they just had the first flight in british columbia oh cool oh i didn't know that. what so size? there's a lot of you know there's a lot of you know we always think about you know what current technologies are and it's not that technology is going to get us out of this dilemma uh, alone but if you approach a zero emission lifestyle combined with new technology, like you know all these new trucks that are electric, um, there can be some. You know, it's entirely conceivable in ten yeah. years, you could probably you know travel quote unquote um, to places you don't have to give up traveling. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's actually a World War II um, era aircraft, like a large Cessna, um, which is a, a four to six passenger plane. Mm. Um, and they just demonstrated the first all-electric flight. Um, and so, you know, cool. in principle, that could be scaling out 
Cool. I didn't I hadn't heard of that yet. That's awesome. Cool. Um, and <coughs> so our next question says, "What ways can I promote solar energy? Um, charging um, electronic when the sun is up." By Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so we were kind of thinking, you know, looking into your own home um, installations and how you could get state and federal tax breaks um, that are available for residential solar products. <coughs> um, of course, those vary, but... Yeah, they vary depending on often, like, with state or federal support of how many credits they give out. So sometimes there's like a big rush of solar projects and then it kind of drops off or mm -hmm. there's more credits and then it kind of picks back up. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be cool to have solar on my house. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be beneficial for for everyone to yes. look into. Um, you have anything to add about solar energy? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's similar in some ways to leading this zero emission lifestyle. If everybody had more experience using solar. Yeah. I think there's a lot of possibilities that we don't, you know, we can't conceive of because a lot of us haven't used solar, but once you do, um, there's a kind of similar to what's possible in the future. There's a lot of, a lot of opportunity space there um, to certainly to charge all your laptops and all your uh, phones, all, all you need, and then combined with LED, which uses a tenth of incandescent bulb uh, yeah. energy consumption, you know, rethinking how we live in light of what's really feasible with solar um, is, is another thing. And I don't know if you guys heard, but they're also phasing out um, natural gas from any new residential developments mm. um, as a way to reduce emissions. And so electric stoves are the mm -hmm. future for any new construction. That's sort of the trend in the West Coast. And we will all be living with conduction stoves which are if, if you want to cook the same way you do with a gas top if you like the way gas yeah. tops cook conduction cooking conduction ovens and stoves and those of course are all electric um, mm. so you know I haven't tried a conduction stove it would be really neat if you had if we all could get a hold of panels you know how many panels does it take to run a conduction stove and um, get natural gas out of your house so I know it takes time but it, there's a lot of cool, especially if mm -hmm. you like to play with gadgets and, you know, like to connect solar panels. There's so much that can be done. Cool. All right. The next question um, is, if the United States stopped producing CO2, how would that change the world's climate? Could you even detect a difference? I thought that was an interesting question. Because I think, like, the day of, like, no. Yeah. Like, no, I don't think there would be like obvious difference and they're thinking of the world's climate immediately or I immediately led then into like future climate um yeah I think you definitely couldn't notice it immediately but could you detect a difference and I don't I'd say I'm, probably yeah and, yeah. I'm, and I'm also wondering if they're implying that like you know it, the US doesn't produce that much CO2 like if they're implying that, but like, why would it even matter? You know, if yeah. the U.S. like if we stopped, and I think that kind of ties into what we were previously talking about that like U.S. is like one of the leading nations on carbon emissions, and I think that stopping CO two would be a big impact. Yeah. Um, and then globally, U.S. is um, thirteen percent of global emissions. So I was trying to do like a little, you know, back of the paper calculations of like how much like 13% would be because if you think of like planting trees and any sort of like mitigation tactic that we're doing to like reduce CO2 emissions like how many trees that would be if 13% um, of our like emissions were just gone um, and that's um, some like really quick calculations it was like planting at least 25 million trees um, because U.S. Uh, emissions is 4.95 gigatons out of the global 33 um, gigatons. Um, and I think that would be, like, a pretty big impact because there's tons of reports now about yeah. plant how many planting tons of trees. But I 
say that this question and also the question after this, which is how do we get India and China to reduce their pollution, I'd say that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, whereas, you know, it's the blame game or pointing fingers. You can't put it on just one country because of how everything is so interconnected. So... Um, yeah, and then, of course, carbon has, um, like, a resonance time in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I even said this last episode for the climate change episode that, um, like, even if everyone stopped all of their carbon emissions, like, we're still going to have excess carbon in the atmosphere for a prolonged time. And there's, like, the IPCC um, said that 30% of this excess carbon would remain in the atmosphere for thousands of years. <laughs> So um, that's still, like, it's still going to linger. We're still on a trajectory, mm-hmm. um, but any amount of lowering that carbon is going to, like, reduce that tra- trajectory. Um, do you have more to add? You got any thoughts on this <laughs> one? lots of eyebrow raises. Well, you guys, this is the uh, question on the final, so somebody... No yeah. way. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> But it would be a good one. Yeah. <coughs> um, well, so that's true from reducing an emissions standpoint, but kind of similar to what I was, the question I was posing earlier is, you know, are we framing the question in the right way? And is, do we need to think solely about emissions reductions? Yeah. Um, and so one alternative in addition, and we clearly do need to be thinking about emissions reductions. There's no question about that. And, and the zero, you know, getting closer to a zero emission lifestyle, but um, it's probably going to take more than that, <coughs> and and in part for the reasons you gave, but also you know how dissatisfied people are going to be when there's no change after you've made all this change, um, because yeah. of the legacy problem of you know of 60 years plus of of all the emissions. So we have to get come up with solutions that can address the excess CO2 in addition to longer uh, emitting excess carbon, and that's definitely a tall order. Mm-hmm. Like through carbon sequestration and through stuff. Through carbon sequestration. Yeah. And when you start doing that and you flip the question around and if you could, you know, uh, one of the good things about actually sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere is if you can actually reduce the amount that's there, you will see an immediate benefit mm-hmm. and because you're literally talking about drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. And when those CO2 concentrations drop, not only will you see them drop, but you will also see the the benefit of that on the Earth's climate system. Um, the good news about that is the day that you start sequestering enough carbon, you get an immediate benefit. Cool. Cool. Which is another incentive, you know, f- for us to have funding agencies, yeah. federal mm-hmm. funding agencies, let's do this and com- combine it. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to develop sequestration approaches and emit more CO2. Yeah. Um, but together, those two could be win-win options for us. And mm-hmm. So it kind of sounds like we need a multiple approaches, like to fix this problem. Yeah. Yeah, and one that people are going to feel good about. And I don't, you know, for the reasons we discussed, you know, the, the emissions reductions alone model. Not only is it going to be dissatisfying, but there's a lot of, you know, discomfort and uh, possibly yeah. associated with it, and that's not ha- hasn't gotten us where we need to be now. So you know, let's think about more flexibility, more freedom, more options combined with mm-hmm. with a, a lower emission lifestyle. Yeah, because if, like, just me saying that, like, thir- this 30% excess CO2 would remain in the atmosphere for thousands of years, like, that immediately sounds terrible and <laughs> maybe yeah. would even make people think, uninclined. like, yeah, yeah, uninclined, like, why even try? Yeah. So, um, but you should try because there's, there's still hope <laughs> with this. Um, so... We have about 15 minutes left, um, and there's a topic that I really want to get to, and then if we have time, we can come back to answering more questions. But I have a personal passion for, um, you could say, convincing skeptics or denialists. (laughs) So I was wondering if you had any advice of how to um, engage in a conversation with skeptics or denialists. Yeah, so back to that conversation. I mean, you know, I think it's, you know... Engaging people with food is very disarming and a, a gesture of, of you know, non-hostility and, and actually a way to 
both present yourself, you know, not as a threat to somebody, not somebody that's going to threaten their lifestyle or their values, um, in a way of welcoming them. And plus, it's really, you know, usually social and fun. And, hmm. and if you're a good cook, you know, everyone likes your food, which I assume, you know, you probably make some really great dishes. So um, that's one avenue. There's certainly other, you know, things you could try. But um, if you're thinking of doing a skeptic event of some sort. Oh, <laughs> that's uh, an idea. Which I would used to look at a roadmap of, you know, where I can go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's fun. And, and, you know, you actually get to meet, you know, new people um, and experience different cultures and lifestyles and values um, and realize that, you know, you may change in the process as well, right? Because, you know, we have our ideas about what a skeptic is mm-hmm. and we have the media's ideas, but we don't really know skeptics directly, right? And when you know one, it's a lot different than um, sort of uh, conceptualizing them. Um, or when you know more of them, you have a better concept of, of you know, what, what it is they're skeptical of. And, you know, and the only other thing I would say is that, you know, we as scientists and you guys being, you know, scientific training, um, mm-hmm. in your degree, you know, we're trained to be skeptics. So skepticism yeah. Yeah. has a very healthy and essential role and certainly in the education process and in, in research. Um, so there's another commonality. If somebody is skeptical, that's, you know, not a mm. negative. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I've heard the argument um, from skeptics that um, scientists' predictions can't be trusted or they're very skeptical of it because like in the 70s scientists were saying that oh by 2000 <coughs> there's going to be an ice age and now here we what are with like global warming <laughs> I don't know but I've talked to like, multiple skeptics and it keeps coming up that they so, think that we would have been in an ice age by now yeah wow. D- are you familiar with that claim um, well I mean you know a skeptic can find a million reasons and you can always point to a science paper that makes an inaccurate prediction, but predictive science relative to evidential science is a small part of the body of evidence, and it's probably the weakest, um, you know, when scientists make predictions. Okay. Um, And so when it comes to climate change, that's the flimsiest evidence for climate change is actually predicting how climate is going to change. And there's a mountain of other evidence, both in the paleo climate record and in the present day record. Um, which is real observational data, and you know, um, so scientists don't rely purely on predictions um, and models um, to make uh, sort of motivate the science. Um, and I would be skeptical of models too. Um, science models have a lot of problems with them. Models are a representation of our understanding, and those are subject to change as the science evolves. Um, that being said, the models generally get it right, and you know. I'm, I'm not sure of the specific study this skeptical person is referring to, but you have to keep in mind that you know when models are run by every major scientific entity in the world um, in an independent fashion through the United Nations, and they're producing consistent results. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that also is a pretty significant um, level of weight I would place on the models compared to you know, just running one model and running with a single model and running with a single result. So there's a lot to unpack in that. And, you know, I think ultimately if somebody wants to be skeptical, you have to look at what their motivations are and where they're coming from. And if if that's a reason for rejecting this current body of evidence, you know, that's a pretty flimsy reason. Um, And there's probably something else where they simply just don't want to engage in it and engage in what that evidence really is today. Interesting. So, so do you think at our skeptic event we're <laughs> going to ha- now have? I'll we bring should. some ribs. Okay. <laughs> um, They'll be meatless ribs. But. Even better. That's, I was going to ask also, real quick <laughs> tangent. Mm-hmm. Are you a vegetarian? I am not. So how do you justify the agriculture impact on climate change if you still eat meat. How do I justify? How do you justify eating meat when you know... How do I justify meat? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eating meat. Well, um, I certainly try to get locally raised food. Um, 
and I'm certainly looking at the meatless um, market that's been developing. Yeah. Um, but you know, I also protein is also a very important source mm-hmm. of diet. So mm-hmm. I know people who've gone completely off of meat, and you end up actually, you know, to some degree having problems, especially if you're a mother with children. Yeah. Uh, that can be a complication. Um, so. Uh, I would say definitely locally produced, try to avoid um, things like, you know, these sort of mass-produced large-scale operations, which are mm-hmm. really the source of a lot of the larger-scale emissions. Um, and and the other alternative view is that, you know, if you look at the whole life cycle of some of these agricultural productions, they have opportunities to sequester carbon as well. And this is sort of part of a larger conversation, but, you know, the, these, these hybridized um, intensive grazing systems that are incorporate alternative crops integrated with free range pasture have a lot of opportunities to store a lot of carbon and we've done work on that in Georgia um, and found that not only are intensive grazing dairy um, production systems in some cases very profitable which is important um, mm-hmm. but also um, we reported, we had a graduate student that recorded the highest carbon sequestration rate ever recorded in grassland due to intensive grazing activities so you know there are opportunities um, with agriculture and this this is you know not specific to you know sort of uh, livestock alone but livestock is part of that opportunity space um, is that there's a lot that's achievable with agriculture and if we re-envision and repurpose our agricultural lands um, in light of carbon sequestration, um, you know, we can potentially produce the foods that we want, including meat. Um, and, you know, I would certainly be one to, to go with an alternative like a meatless patty if it's going to taste the same. Um, so as with zero emissions, I think we're all transitioning. And, mm-hmm. you know, have I transitioned now? No. Um, I probably would have more climate change skeptics hostile with me if I wasn't uh, <laughs> cooking was ribs. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely something I've been on the journey of, um, of like what to eat, what my, what diet is best for me compared to what diet is best for my views. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one to ask. Yeah, I think healthy locally produced is a good way to start, um, mm-hmm. and especially if you know where it's coming from and yeah. what it's doing to the okay. land. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. Thank and, you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you want to say to our listeners? Um, no, I want to thank you guys for inviting me over here, and it makes me really excited and enthused and optimistic about the future to see you guys engaging in these issues uh-huh. on a weekly basis and yeah. for really, you know, continuing this conversation um, and, and engaging other people with it. So let me know if you do do a skeptic event. I'll be <laughs> excited to hear about it. But I want to thank you know. guys for for spending the time to do this. It's it's really exciting. Cool. And we when we did our fast fashion, we actually talk, you know we put it into the universe. We were going to have a, a clothing swap, and that did come true. So uh-huh. we'll we'll have oh, to yeah, see. Oh yeah, we say <laughs> we speak it into existence. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you so yes. much for coming. Um, thank you guys. And we'll be back next week, um, Tuesday at three with some more talk about the environment and then also if you can follow us on instagram environmental pod and facebook environmental and tomorrow um the same time i'm actually going to be on the show it's trivia time with emily right here on coog radio so tune into that (laughs) as well all right okay bye bye bye